Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list, but remember this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, Canada's answer to the Venus de Milo. <laughs> well, someone had to try. <laughs> and boy, are you trying. I pulled it off, baby. Well... Uh, the, the, the jury's out on that one. The jury's out on that one. But we have a tough assignment this week. Uh, this film requires some deciphering, some decoding. And so we've brought in quite the expert to help us on our journey to Russia. Joining us on the show this week, it is author and journalist Mr. Henry R. Schlesinger. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Fine. Fine. Welcome aboard. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to have someone that uh, actually has some credentials for once, because frankly, we have none. <laughs> um, I think before maybe we introduce this week's film and get to talking about it a little bit, let's let's talk about you a wee bit. So, um, you know, you, I mentioned you're an author off top of there, but you know, going back a little bit, what what got you interested in the world of espionage and, and potentially spy movies as well? Um, I was writing about technology. And I was led astray by my co-authors, my longtime co-authors, Bob Wallace and um, Keith Melton. And um, the three of us together collaborated on a book called Spycraft, which was lately made into a series on Netflix. Um, and what it did was it traced the technological history of the Central Intelligence Agency and all of the gadgets that they use. Um, Bob Wallace, um, you could fairly say, was America's Q for many years. Have you ever seen The House on 92nd Street? Sure. Um, it's um, Actually, I believe it's on 93rd Street or 94th Street, but the director thought 92nd Street sounded better. Um, the house is no longer standing. It's in our book, again, with Bob Wallace and Keith Melton, um, Spy Sites of New York City. Wow, I thought that was a made-up place. Um, no. As a matter of fact, the um, FBI um, collaborated with the filmmakers. There's a lot of um, fictional you know, elements to it, but it really was a real place. Wow. You've actually shined a light on a film that we have often taken jabs at, to be fair. That's uh, it's actually nice. It's got a little bit of realism to it. But um, yeah, you spoke about that, that being your entry point. You led us straight, but I didn't let you finish your story. Um, from there, I um, did a series of books on my own and articles on my own. Um, the latest is um, Honey Trapped, about um, sexual use in espionage, the use of sex in espionage. Yeah, there'll be a link to that in the show notes below. We'll talk a little bit about it later. But that's Honey Trap, Sex, Betrayal, and Weaponized Love. And uh, you can basically get that right. wherever you get all good books. But yeah, so what led you to sort of because you said you mentioned about all these, these co-writers you've been working with, and you've done some books by yourself, but this particular one, Honey Trap, being your latest one, what inspired you to write about that? It's the well, I, you know, what links all of the books, Spycraft, and um, the trilogy, the um, Spy Sites books, which include Spy Sites of New York, Spy Sites of Washington, and Spy Sites of Philadelphia, is the use of tradecraft, and sex is the oldest tradecraft or form of tradecraft used, but it's not really written about, and there really wasn't a comprehensive history of it. But if you look at it closely, it goes back to the Bible. Um, it goes back to ancient Indian texts. 
Um, and it's a, the oldest enduring piece of tradecraft there is. I would love to know, because you say it's not often you know written about or really treated with kind of the the level of maybe seriousness it deserves but if there's any good film versions that have tackled this or film stories that have tackled this that maybe jump out to you um really no it's um this this sexual aspect um obscures the uh, obscures the seriousness of it if that makes sense right um you know, it's um, it's just if if you look at it as another piece of tradecraft, such as secret writing or a dead drop, or you know, one of those things, um, established or signal site, an established piece of tradecraft, um, it makes a lot more sense than if you look at it as um, a Hollywood, you know, fiction. I mean, we've we've looked at it a couple of times. I know that Mata Hari's actual story was more based in in sex, but the Greta Garbo film kind of strays away from that a little bit. I would say. Right. The Marta Hari actual story is, um, it's a very dark story. She had a very, very tough life. Um, she was, you know, to just one aspect of it, she was infected with syphilis by her husband um, early in their marriage. Um, she had two children by then. They were treated with the common treatment back then, which was um, mercury. And the base doctor, her husband was a, um, in the military, the base doctor overprescribed um, mercury for the children, and her son died. Her toddler son died of it. Um, you know, from there she was. You know, her default mode was prostitution, but she was hyped as a dancer and made lots of money for a while, and then on the downside um, was recruited by as a spy and used as a propaganda tool after her capture because of the reputation the pre-existing reputation that she had in show business and of course all the photos that you know were taken of her early on so she made the perfect propaganda tool it's it's funny because i, I i've read her story a few times now and we tackled that greta garbo film years ago at this point and i just feel like there's never been a good adaptation of her story i know it's not like a laugh a minute kind of story it's not going to have people running to cinemas but i think there's a lot of meat on that bone to sort of tackle and no one's really made it, I would say, like the, 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 the Matahari epic. No, the myth has really overtaken the, um, the reality. You know, she's become synonymous with sexual entrapment. Mm. You know, um, you see it in reading the literature. People are called the Matahari of this or the blonde Matahari or the Matahari yep. of that. Um, the whole legend from the very beginning was a fiction. She was Dutch. She wasn't from the in, in East Indies. Or even they drop like Matahari in like the latest Kingsman movie. So she's almost like this pop figure that people right. don't even have the interest in kind of digging under the surface of. Yeah. She's become a mythological figure or, um, you know, a shorthand for sexual entrapment. Um, the interesting thing was, is that her following her execution, her head was removed and um, stored in a museum in Paris. And a few years ago, it turned up missing. Oh, that's quite grisly. Yeah, it's probably, you know, somebody needed to complete a collection, maybe. Well, there's definitely, th 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 and, this is, and this is the thing, and it's actually an interesting thing, because uh, it might play well into what we're talking about shortly, the reality of being a spy. But before we get there, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of ask about your interests in spy movies outside of your, of your writing. Um, what sort of spy movies do you drift towards? I like the ones that are over the top, to tell you the truth. 
Um, I like the Kingsman. I like the two Red movies, Red One and Red Two. I don't know if you've seen it. If, you, yep. if you've seen them, for sure. Um, and I like some of the classics. Um, the Third Man, of course. You know, Graham Greene. Um, I like most of the Graham Greene movies. Um, even the remake of Quiet American, which I thought was superior to the original. But I worry about leakage, um, if that's uh, if that makes sense. I worry about um, some of the fictions of Hollywood leaking into my um, knowledge base. Sure. Yeah, like it, it, the pop culture of it all sort of influencing your writing. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But um, from one established and esteemed spy author to another, Cam, the question goes to you, and no, Cam is not an esteemed spy author. But one of the writers of this week's film surely is. Cam, what are we talking about this week? Yes, we are talking about 1990's The Russia House, which is based on the novel by John le Carre and starring Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes, quite the, quite the cast, quite the caliber uh, behind the, 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 the lens, as it were. I'm, I think, is this, Cam, is this our second le Carre adaptation? It is, yes. We did The Little Drummer Girl. And I don't think we've had one since. Maybe because of the little drummer girl. <laughs> yeah, that, that Diane Keaton film has left a, a some sort of mark on me. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think before we do anything else, for those who haven't seen the film, uh, here is your letterbox.com synopsis: The Russia House, Barley Scott Blair a Lisbon-based editor of Russian literature who unexpectedly begins working for British intelligence is commissioned to investigate the purposes of Dante, a dissident scientist trapped in the decaying Soviet Union that is crumbling under the new open-minded policies. Yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah, that's a fair synopsis. It, it, yeah, I can't say much. I can't make a joke about that one. No, no. I wonder if they just basically took the book and uh, transcribed it. Uh, yeah, like that, that's the, the, bat, the bit on the back. Maybe. And before we dig too deep into what the Russia House was made of, it is important to note that we have a very special guest joining us later this week. Yes, we are going to be talking to cinematographer Ian Baker, who played, of course, a vital role in achieving the look, the very distinct look of Russia House on screen. Absolutely, which we will talk about more in the review. But yeah, that's coming into your podcast feeds on Friday this week, and we have a very special announcement for what's coming up next week, but we'll save that till the end of the show. But throwing it out there, Henry, you first, sir. Do you recall seeing this film in theaters or catching this at any point before watching it for this show? I recall seeing the film in theaters when I was writing about technology. Um, I think it came out in 1990. Yeah. Um, and um, it kind of blew me away. Um, and then, you know, um, it's just a smart film. The writing is, I mean, it's Tom Stoppard. So of course it's, you know, very good writing, you know, but, um, the writing blew me away. It was smarter than the average spy movie. If that may, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that was something that was, I, I, well, I watched a behind the scenes documentary, which we'll tackle in a little bit, but that, I think that was an effort to try and do something different to what was being done in spy films around the time. Cause you know, you just come out of you know, license to kill in 89. Or some of the big other tent poles. I'm sure Cam has a few listed for this year as well. 1989. That's like the big year of like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Star Trek 5, uh, Batman. Yeah, it was a big year. Mm, indeed. Um, it's more in the tradition of a Graham Greene movie, say The Quiet American or um, The Third Man or one of those. I'm trying to think. Was 
Did, was Ministry of Fear a Graham Greene adaptation? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the only Graham Greene we've done so far. No, we did do a second, and I'm totally blanking on what it was, but there was mm. another one. Okay, it'll, it'll come to us during the show, I'm sure. Yeah. It is a throwback, or it is um, an echo of earlier, better spy movies. Yeah. Or more serious spy movies. I don't yeah. want to use the word better. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And actually, that is actually one of my notes that we'll get into. But uh, question for you, Cam. I think it's time. Let's have some fun. Let's do some good. Tell us, how was the house built? So, yes, this is based, as we said, on the John le Carré novel, which had come out in 1989. Uh, they must have had an early manuscript that they had snapped up the rights to, because obviously this is a 1990 movie. Mm-hmm. And um, the person who was brought in to adapt it was Tom Stoppard. Czechoslovakian born, uh, but started his career really in the early 60s and worked in British TV. He was also a playwright, uh, really bounced around the British film and TV industry for quite a while, but had some notable credits along the way. He uh, wrote for the acclaimed director Rainer Werner Fassbinder in uh, the 1970s with a movie called Despair. And then got a big bump with the 1985 film Brazil, which of course stars Spy Hard's favorite, Jonathan Price, And he got an Oscar nomination for that. And that was kind of like the uh, doors open up to Hollywood a little bit. Because two years later, he's writing Empire of the Sun for Steven Spielberg. Um, and in 1990, this is a key credit that is going to come back. He wrote and directed, this is his only directorial work. Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead, which has obviously had, you know, a certain amount of impact. It's basically a comedic riff on Hamlet. Remember that movie because we're going to come back to that. And that was sort of the lead in to Russia House. They both came out the same year uh, in terms of when one is being written in contrast to the other. Don't really know. But uh, ultimately, it's kind of like a big year for Stoppard. And he goes on to do things like Shakespeare in Love you know, eight years later and wins the Oscar for that. So very acclaimed writer and still working to this day. Yeah, I mean, speaking to the point you mentioned there about them having some sort of oversight on the script, part of the documentary I was watching today, which I think is one of the featurettes from the DVD, but it's just up on YouTube now. You can search them all. They're all on there. Uh, basically said that they they had early oversight, but John Lucari was very much involved in that point, And they had a director and they had, I think they even had Tom Stoppard at that point, but they weren't getting a studio to take it, which then leads to the casting. Right. Yes. And uh, in terms of before, just before casting, you know, you've got the director, Fred Shapisi, who was not a name that like leaped out to me big time until I kind of dug a little bit and was like, oh, okay, I do remember this guy quite well, actually. He was an Australian director, advertising background, and started directing in the... Um, in the late 60s with like shorts before moving into you know various tv and smaller films but he had a breakthrough in 1976 with a coming of age drama called the devil's playground i haven't seen that and then he kind of like puts out a number of movies that not hugely memorable but interesting like he did a willie nelson western called barbarossa he did a early meryl streep drama called plenty and then he had a real breakthrough with the movie roxanne which starred um steve martin and then from there, it's like, okay, you get A Cry in the Dark, which was a very acclaimed Meryl Streep drama. It rolls into Russia House. 
and then kind of like post this does things that maybe not acclaimed but i think people will remember movies like mr baseball with tom Selleck, six degrees of separation which was an early will smith drama as well as he co-directed fierce creatures the follow-up to a fish called wanda there was a follow-up to a fish called wanda there it's not a sequel but they reassembled the entire cast and made a new film uh called fierce creatures yes any good it's okay Oh, I, I was also going to point out, I was just looking up Roxanne on IMDb because I was hoping that was the genesis of the song. Oh, no, no. It's a uh, riff on Cyrano de Bergerac. No, I, I know that now, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. you don't have to put on that red light cam. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And um, now getting back to the stoppard of it all and Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead. Sean Connery was slated to play the Player King in that film but was unable to take part because he had a throat cancer scare and ultimately had to buy his himself out of the contract and was replaced by Richard Dreyfus. And with that time, basically, the cancer scare turned out to be nothing, no big deal for Connery, but he wasn't able to make that movie. And so instead he went and did The Hunt for Red October, which was a huge hit. But when the opportunity came to work with Stoppard again... He jumped at it. And so that's kind of was one of the main draws for him signing on to do Russia House. It wasn't necessarily tied to the fact that James Bond wanted to make a more serious espionage film. It was very much a Tom Stoppard draw. So what year was Red October? Uh, it was 1990, I think it came out. Yeah. Same year as this then. So it, it, despite him being you know, James Bond, as we all know and love, he's made two different, very different spy movies in the same year. I like that. Good for him. Yeah, and this is that uh, 87 is The Untouchables. So it's that Connery resurgence where suddenly it's like he's the beloved, you know, kind of like elder statesman coming back to become a movie star after a few years kind of in questionable movies. So you're getting stuff like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the you know, just the previous year. Connery's really, really in a very good place career-wise. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, well, I'm interested to know from from you, Henry, your experiences with with sort of Sean Connery and and his James Bond films and his sort of journey to this point. Um, they're great, you know. They're he is he defined the character. Um, a lesser actor probably wouldn't have um, create. I would say he not only defined the character, but he um, created the franchise. Oh yeah, yeah. I think a lesser, you know, um, star, maybe the franchise wouldn't have been as long running or as good. No, I don't think we'd be talking about James Bond now without Sean Connery's influence. I think he, he's, yeah, he's the tracks in which it's built. He's the foundation of Bond, basically. Uh, uh, but also, like, moving away from that, you know, you mentioned things like Red October and you mentioned things like uh, The Untouchables, which we've covered on a different show before. But yeah, it really is sort of the Connery renaissance right about now, isn't it? It really is, yeah. And, I mean, he had power because when he signed on, he was also granted casting approval over the movie. So, um, for example, you know, there was a lot of local actresses because this movie was a co-production with Russia and the U.S. And um, there was several local actresses from Russia vying for the role, but Connery and the director wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. And it was also Connery who okayed James Fox um, to... uh, come on to the movie playing you know ned the british espionage kind of overseer um and james fox of course is the brother of edward fox who played m in never say never again and was also in day of the jackal 
First of the few connections to Never Say Never Again. Yes. And he also okayed Claus Maria Brandauer, who, of course, was Largo in Never Say Never Again, and also was the original choice to play the Connery role in The Hunt for Red October. It is all connected right now. I have a question. Is this yeah. James Fox's return to the screen? Just for just for reference, because my film knowledge is never that great, Henry. Where, where did he go? Did he just step away for a while? Um, he stepped away for years. Um, I think he stepped away after performance. I'll I'll jump in with an answer, but I'm not sure it's a satisfactory one because I can't really see a gap in his filmography. I mean, in 1990, he did four appearances, but he was working 89, 88, 87, 86, 84. Uh, he missed 85. Maybe it was that year. Mm. But yeah, and then moving forward again, he was 92, 93, 94, 95. Yeah, he had Mr. Beat for a very long time. He, uh, he got a credit for last year. James Fox still going. Huh. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. And, um, you know, as I said, Brandauer was the original choice for Hunt for Red October. He actually had to drop out of that because he was busy doing his directorial debut. Um, so that's interesting, though, because uh, you don't tend to put Brandauer and Connery side by side in terms of star power, but it just kind of shows you a different time and place. Yeah, I, I know people were... I think it was one of the coups that the casting would never say ever again was, was Brandauer, but I've never seen him in anything other than this film now and never seen ever again. Yeah, I've seen him in a number of things from that time period, but he, not someone who, like, what, for me, just being my age, the movie White Fang in 1992 was a big deal with Ethan Hawke, and he was the uh, co-star of that movie, but post that, or even movies, yeah, it's like we've come across him a number of times, but he wasn't an actor that kind of looms large in my mind. Any, any thoughts on Brandauer, Henry? Um, no, I think he's a great actor. Um, you know, he's never, you know, but he's always been in kind of a supporting role, no? No, I, that's been my experience, so I definitely agree there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this movie, as I said, was the first Western film shoot that was allowed to actually be filmed inside the Soviet Union with full government permission. And Connery had actually shot there before. In 1969, he did a Italy-Soviet Union co-production called The Red Tent um, that was about a failed 1928 Arctic expedition. I've never seen it, but it's one of those epic-length movies of the 60s I feel I should watch. It's like almost three hours, of course. You do like those punishing films. I, I love them. They are genuinely uh, entertaining to me every time. So I should check out The Red Tent. Um, but uh, yeah, the movie was... Um, co-financed by Moss Film, which was Russia's largest studio. They supplied half of the film's crew, uh, but catering, because of the food shortages in the Soviet Union, were not able to be met by them. So the catering was actually brought in by Pinewood, um, who had got the movie by neighboring countries. Um, it makes you wonder um, if Sean Connery played a role in, allow in being allowed to film in Moscow. Um, we know through, you know, different sources that James Bond films were regularly screened by the KGB for their officers. In, in an enjoyment sense or like some sort of this is what the West, the decadent West are doing? The story goes that they were looking at James Bond films to see what they might encounter in the field later on. Um, huh. I, I suspect it was for, you know, enjoyment sense. I, 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 I mean, I, the KGB it ended the way it did, in a sense. But it, it's interesting to just think they were like on the lookout for you know, DB5s with ejector seats. 
Yeah. <laughs> the, the true taking down of the KGB was mistraining. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually um, watching an interview with Connery in prep for this episode, and they were asking him about his Bond movies. And they basically asked him in a nice way, like, were there some you were just phoning it in for? <laughs> like, you just didn't care? <laughs> what did he say? Well, Connery goes... Yeah, he goes, you know, some I was much more invested in in others or than others, but he did say like from Russia with Love was his favorite. And it it just seems like he's interested in maybe sort of, you know, the history of Russia because he's obviously making this movie. He's filmed movies that are Russian co-productions in the past. I think there was just an interest in that history and that culture. So I do think he probably would have been a pretty good actor to be headlining a movie like this that is a co-production approved by you know the soviet union but let's all be honest with ourselves this film was only laying down the foundations for midnight in st petersburg also true also true be that a good or a bad thing <laughs> i'll leave that all to you to decide <laughs> yes so this movie's budget was 21.8 million dollars um, i found a funny note where they said half of that budget was on the rights the two stars and the director. <laughs> I can I can genuinely buy that actually. Yeah, that, that that adds up. Yeah. Could not find international money on this one. I don't know why. I am absolutely positive it had international releases, but uh the only thing I could find was the domestic number, which was twenty three million dollars, which it was not a big hit. But if you actually look up press before the movie came out, there was a lot of talk about how this was seen as like one of the big holiday movies. They hoped. <laughs> got to be well. They hoped, but it's also got to be. Surely this was released in Russia as well. Like it, you think about like films being released in China now, bringing in a whole three hundred extra million or something. I'm not saying Russia would have done that. They were going through quite an economic downturn at the time, but yeah, cinemas were still quite cheap in that point. I would have thought this would have had quite the the sort of showing. It's even got the country in the title. I think it's just a mix of maybe not a huge hit. Uh, but also just sketchy box office tracking when it comes to international numbers for that era. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, when I look at the worldwide uh, you know, uh, rankings for the year, it's not going to be that high because I've only got domestic, but it landed number 54 between the Steve Martin comedy My Blue Heaven and The First Power, which I had never heard of. It is a Lou Diamond Phillips film about a demonic serial killer and a cop and a psychic who have to team up to stop him. You couldn't be more late 80s, early 90s than that. <laughs> the top three for the year. Number one was Home Alone. Number two was Ghost. And number three was Dances with Wolves. Uh, three pretty memorable movies. Home Alone. I didn't realize it did that well. It was a massive hit. Home Alone was huge. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And a um, couple of just final notes. Michelle Pfeiffer got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress in a Drama for the film, but lost to Kathy Bates for Misery. And um, Sean Connery was actually the recipient of the People's Sexiest Man Alive Award in 1989, around the time this movie is in production. And at the time, he tried to nominate Mikhail Gorbachev in his place because he didn't really <laughs> want it. <laughs> Well, <laughs> of, of, of all the people to nominate in your stead, sure, Gorbachev, do it. Yeah, and there was a much made at the time that uh, Connery was the oldest man to ever get the title. I have nothing to add to this. It's such a weird thing. <laughs> it's such a weird thing to be uh, labeled with. But I, he is a very sexy man, so I see it. I just figured that's trivia you're not going to hear on most Russia House podcasts. 
<laughs> are people listening to Russia House podcast? What are you all doing here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's put in our Shakespeare sonnet for careful drivers tape into our tape deck and let's go on our journey to the Russia House. Let's talk about it. What do we think of this film? Henry, you're our guest. You're up first. What do you think of the Russia House? I think it's a great film. Um, it's a, probably the one, it's probably a, among the best adaptations of spy novels I've seen on the screen, um, except for the ending. Now, I, I was telegraphed to your feelings on the ending, so I might even get you to, to sort of put a pin in it until we get to the dislike section, because I'm interested to jump on your point Okay. that you said it's one of the best adaptations of a spy book that you've ever read, and you write books about spies, so you're a person I would trust with that opinion. So what, for you, makes it such a, a successful adaptation? Um, the pace of it, the, um, the tradecraft employed, the um the way the characters act they act like real spies um you know there there isn't a lot of you know there's no gunplay there's no running through subways there's you know i mean not that there's anything wrong with that it's just that it's not how you know espionage works um the recruitment um small things in the movie where um the sean connery character is first taken to the safe house to meet the um intelligence team and um the guy that picks him up is from the count uh, is from the embassy and connery knows where the embassy is in lisbon and the guy sits back in the car and says i'm commercial i'm strictly commercial and the door opens and he's led into the building where the safe house is um things like that um you know it's all underplayed it's um the extraordinary striving for the ordinary um if you can you know if if you want to use that phrase um if nothing else um espionage attempts to mimic the ordinary well it's a really good example of like guess what i'm going to refer to as everyman espionage where it's actually you know it's an outsider coming in but it's not like the trappings of more of the uh, spy fi kind of stuff we actually get like a grounded look at espionage and what someone in Connery's position might actually go through without turning him into Cary Grant in North by Northwest. It actually plays it grounded, gritty, and real. And to a certain degree, he's not even that aware of what's going on with the higher powers around him. Right. Um, he's, he's not aware of the conflicts between Washington and um, London. Um, he remains, you know, um, his personality remains the same. You know, he's like, why Langley, Bob? You know that great line in the you know when they first meet. Um, he remains a smartass. He remains drinking. Um, he doesn't turn into James Bond. You know after one meeting with them. It's something that has come up quite a few times in our years tackling spy movies is when they get one of these unlikely heroes, and by the end of the film, they are James Bond or they are like the most accomplished agent you've right. ever seen in your life. And I always try to point out how ludicrous it is. I mean, one of the most recent examples, which is not a good connective tissue, but The Spy Who Dumped Me, which is a 2018 spy comedy, you know, they they start off in a great fashion where they don't know and they're bumbling around. But by the end, they are up there with James Bond. And you just think, no, the fun was them being real people dealing with this insane situation. Well, it's kind of a male fantasy, right? It's male. It's um, romance for guys. You know, if only given the chance, I could be James Bond. I see. I, I wouldn't want to be James Bond, I have to say. 
so much legwork. I'd actually rather be Harry Palmer out of the two. I'd just do paperwork all day. It sounds more fun. Yeah, good wardrobe, though. Yeah. You know, you get to wear Tom Ford all day and, um, you know, um, cocktail cuffs and tab collars. (laughs) I'd hate to see my dry cleaning bill. Um, Well, okay, so we've got a fan in you, Henry. Cam, what do you think? I'm real mixed on this one. Okay. In some ways, I am actually quite interested and intrigued by this movie. I think, like, the tackling of this very grounded approach to espionage, we haven't done, I feel like, a lot of these types of movies. Probably not as many as we should have. Um, We often will try to insert, you know, some more serious espionage films in the midst of some of the blockbuster stuff, but... It is a genre I'm very interested in, or a subgenre of spy films, and I think this one really conveys sort of like the tradecraft aspects. There are sections where they're teaching him about how to essentially go about his environment, and the fact he can't pick out who the other agents are that are hiding around him. Elements like that, I was like, this is perfect. And I thought this movie had wonderful sense of atmosphere. I found the central drama of it did not grab me at all. And especially when we get to the romantic drama, which, um, boy, speaking of uh, men's fantasies, uh, this one really, I thought, was straining credulity for me. And it's like there would be elements that would pull me in, and then it just didn't have, like, to me, the pace or the kind of that slow build momentum. It's obviously not a blockbuster film in in the classic sense and frankly i can't imagine this movie ever being made now and that is not a good thing i wish more movies were made like this nowadays that were big star vehicles that showed on you know three thousand screens over a weekend that'd be fantastic Mm -hmm. but i just didn't find that it was the kind of slow burn that actually emotionally connected to me or pulled me in i felt like a very passive experience a lot of the time almost like you were witnessing the film not watching the film yeah and it's been really interesting Because it was the sort of thing where we have people in our listeners who I know are massive fans of this. So, and I had never seen it. So I was actually excited to watch it. And it was actually really, I thought, helpful and kind of interesting after when I finished the movie to look up and just see how polarizing it is. Mm. And that there are people who absolutely love it. will go to the mat as like, this is one of the definitive Le Carre stories. Um, And then there's others who are like, oh boy, was this not for me. And the closest parallel... I think for that I can kind of come up with is Red Alert, Scott. Um, Star Trek, the motion picture, which is a movie that I love, but I can also understand anyone who would watch it and be like, that was two hours of nothing happening. And I'm like, yeah, but isn't it great? It's sort of like if you soak into the ambience of this movie and find that a very rich experience, I get it. It just clearly was not something that grabbed me. Interesting contrast between the two of you there. Um, mm. it, and I, I know what you mean about this being one of the, the films that people mention to us on social media I, I'm the guy who does most of our social media I see these messages and, and this is why we're talking about the film I, I, I think like it's interesting hearing Henry's thoughts about really loving the vibe and the, the, the storytelling here and then you having trouble with it but I think it also speaks to a bit of a bias that we found in our own programming about not putting more of these films in and perhaps us gravitating more towards the spy-fi, as you call it, or the blockbusters, or just things that we are more comfortable with, which are those films. Mm. And what the question I want to throw at Henry, actually, jumping off of your point, Cam, was, Henry, you mentioned your favourite sort of spy films were the 
the blockbusters, the the Kingsmans and that sort of stuff. And yet you found yourself drawn towards this so much. Why do you find this one pulled you in more than, say, the average? I'm going to say something that's going to get me into trouble. Do it. Do it. <laughs> we do it all the time. We do it every week. Yeah. Okay. It has echoes of Graham Greene, and I'm a huge Graham Greene fan. Mm. Uh, it also, it remains relevant. And I was watching it last night. Um, it, the Barley character, he has that attitude that a lot of people in the West have. This endless optimism from about Russia that is always disappointed. Um, where the Russians themselves seem to have a fatalistic attitude. And I think that's um, relevant today. That remains relevant today. I think I'm actually going to bridge your two opinions on it. Because I loved almost everything this film was doing. I think it is gorgeous. I think the cinematography is fantastic. There's, there's framing of one shot that I'm going to call out later on that I just, I think it's one of those like perfect frames or that, that image, that Twitter account that does a one perfect shot or whatever it is. They need to put this one out. It's fantastic. Yeah. The score, Jerry Goldsmith can do no wrong by me, but like having Jerry Goldsmith do a jazz soundtrack, I'm here for it. It absolutely works. <laughs> but like, I love seeing what Sean's doing with the Barley character. I think Michelle Pfeiffer's great as, as Katia as well. I think they both are playing their parts very well. My problem I find with this film is it just drags in the later stages where I lose interest in the overall sort of problem. And by the end, I find myself not particularly caring what happens to any of them. And I think I fall more towards the sort of witnessing like Cam said he was. So I start more in the Henry camp, and by the end, I become more of a Cam. So it's interesting that I've gone through that process. Yeah. Well, let's talk about things that we liked. So, Henry, you kind of mentioned a couple, but one of the things you want to point out are things you liked about the film. I like the realism about it. Um, even down to the streets of Russia where the women are carrying perhaps bags, those plastic bags that perhaps there'll be something in the store. Um I like the um, the low tech of it too, where he's wearing a wire and it's a very simple kind of recording device. Um, real spies go for simplicity over complexity, because simplicity is known. It's you know it's reliable that kind of thing. Um, I liked the idea that you know it it played on some of the spy tropes. That you you know see in early in other films, the blockbusters, where he's going to save the girl in trouble. Um, and again, you know, as I said before, I like the idea of it. You know, the spies trying to, um, you know, the spies trying to mimic reality, normality, you know, on the street and you know, you know, during an operation. And what's fascinating, I find about this film, as Cam mentioned, it being sort of one of the first Western productions in russia post i suppose the cold war it it's just stunning to see like i mentioned the cinematography earlier but it's just fantastic to see you know russia i don't feel like i've ever really seen russia like this in films no i mean have you previously seen any examples like this henry um no i haven't the detail um that they brought to it um, and they knew what the details were. That's interesting to me. Again, 
the perhaps bags, the plastic bags that the women carry, um, the buying shoes. It was a throwaway scene where they go into Gumma department store to buy shoes for her, right? And um, he, he says something to the effect when she complains, you know, maybe you shouldn't be complaining. And she says, we're allowed to complain, but there's still no product. Maybe different people are stealing from us now. No, I mean, this movie had an amazing sense of specificity. And I mean, that was one of my likes as well, which was the location shooting in this film was astonishing. And you really can't replicate this sort of thing. You know, you look at how so many movies now will like green screen in the backdrop of a location or something like that. And the way this movie captures all the little details the sense of just where Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer are walking scene after scene. There's that park that she goes through with all the statues. And I'm like, this is an incredible movie location. And I think, you know, um, the director, Fred uh, Schapissi, um, has a real good knack for making the atmosphere just come through the location of which he's shooting. The palette of the movie has that real, like, kind of, like, grays and kind of dark greens. Like, there's a real vibrancy to kind of this uh to this place well it, it i think it lends to the sense of dread and foreboding that i think that it's it's probably baked in there somewhere that i would say probably barley feels he's not a strange man in a strange land he loves russia but he's now a stranger in his own skin because he has to be this thing he's never thought he's going to be which is a spy and you know there's also that scene where they're up in that sort of church clock tower but and one thing i found that documentary i was looking at earlier they had a lot of local help finding all these places to shoot and it they could have just you know shot in the red square or whatever and that that been it hey we got russia we're done we'll go shoot the rest of this in czechoslovakia but they actually went to all these little little nooks and crannies they found around russia that they just i think it just adds to the the flavor of the film mm-hmm Heck, even the sequence where they meet with the uh, uh, with all the various handlers at the uh, cabin <laughs> next to the water, which is, of course, in my hometown mm. of uh, it's Bowen Island, which is about an hour away from where I am now. Uh, I've been there once when I was uh, pretty young, but uh, very atmospheric and having those actors just shoot that sequence where they're all just talking in like a living room mm-hmm. with that view outside the window like the movie is the type of film that like you just don't get anymore no. and this was such commonplace like you throw on most movies of the 90s for example these studio films they would really capture the locations they would look beautiful and that was sometimes the reason people went to see movies was because of the location work and uh, this is a great example of it well, even especially the early Connery Bonds, if we're connecting it to that again, which I'm sure Sean probably wouldn't want us talking about Bond all the way through this episode because this is him, in a sense, trying to distance himself as a different type of spy. So I'll leave it there. But Cam, something you wanted to bring up that you liked. Yeah, I mean, the locations was my number one. But secondary, I had the supporting cast. This is just a murderer's row, uh, not to borrow from... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> a recent Dean Martin film we mm. talked about, but uh, just a murderer's row of a supporting cast. And we talked about, you know, James Fox as the British handler. Fantastic. Has that real like sense of just kind of someone who has worked in the spycraft world for a long time, but has a certain humanity about him. Like you don't get the sense he's treating Sean Connery just like a pawn 
without any regard whatsoever for this guy, which you sometimes get in other movies. You got the sense there was at least something to this human being. He's he's no Julian Glover in The Fourth Protocol. No, no. But even like uh, throwing in John Mahoney, who has like a couple lines, you know, like great. Um, I thought it was amazing seeing J.T. Walsh pop up as like, I guess, the military liaison or something, Quinn. Yeah. Uh, who's has the bizarre questioning asking Sean Connery if he's had homosexual experiences. I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a odd question to throw in there. But uh, again, flashbacks to little Nikita. Yeah. But that is like a, um, cl- that is a classic JT Walsh type character where they're just kind of slimy and a little bit ominous. Like you don't, you don't quite trust them. But I thought most of all, Roy Scheider was killing it, <laughs> killing it for me as Russell sort of the head of the CIA interests. His like very colorful dialogue is like, God damn it, son of a bitch kind of dialogue was amazing. Um, I loved the ending of him basically walking out of the control room being like, well, till next time, guys. That's all she wrote. <laughs> loved him. Absolutely loved Roy Scheider. He also did that like long metaphor that went from one thing to talking about steak halfway through. I thought this is just, this is just bizarre wording that I love hearing Roy deliver. And I, I think we, we're missing a few names to also mention. Oh, there's lots. Yeah, I mean, like Martin Clunes. What, what, a, what a strange, I think one of his earliest roles, but definitely one of his earliest film roles before being famous in Men Behaving Badly. And uh, Doc, uh, and then there's also you know, Mac McDonald of Red Dwarf fame. Uh, Nicholas Wooderson, previous guest on the show, known from sort of Skyfall, pops up at the start. I got another crazy one. Um, an actor named George Roth who shows up, in, you know, that safe house that Connery goes to towards the end of the movie. And there's like the guy on the wire equipment yep. wearing like the toque slash beanie, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That guy was the mugger at the start of Tim Burton's Batman. Who's wearing pretty much the exact same clothing who gets kicked through an open door. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And there's one more bit of casting that I, I, I think Henry wanted to talk about. And that is Ken Russell. Mm-hmm. Love Ken Russell. He steals every scene. He's he's in a different film, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he um I think he's put in there to represent a type of um British Secret Service um person um with eccentricities, pulled out of Cambridge or Oxford. You know, he's wearing the plaid pants, the golf pants. I, I think as a Yank we'd call them golf pants. Um yeah, and he steals every scene. You know, he's um, a character. And at the end, he suffers. At the end of the movie, um, he's canned. One of my favorite bits with him is when he's basically playing wiretapping bingo, yeah. where they're <laughs> listening in. He has the board with all the various things you would want to know about a person. And he's like, got another one, got another one, basically ticking them all off. <laughs> that was great. And of course, Ken Russell, for those who don't know, was more famously known as a director and directed Billion Dollar Brain, uh, a movie we tackled uh, quite a ways back. We know and mildly love. Mildly. Very mildly. (laughs) Brain power. Very 70s director. Yes, yes. Um, I prefer stuff like Altered States, some of his crazier movies than uh, Billion Dollar Brain. And Tommy. That's his only other film of his I've seen, is Tommy. And that's a trip right there. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's a, much like his character in this film Tommy is a trip Yeah, uh, I, I think <laughs> there's a couple of things that haven't been mentioned in terms of likes so I'll just chuck them in kind of like a 
you know, all at once sort of thing. I mentioned the Jerry Goldsmith score. It's so good. I went back and listened to it off like a film today. I went and listened to it on Spotify. <laughs> it's that good. I loved it. It's sweeping like romance from time straight to jazz music. I, I just thought like, I mean, it's, it's funny that this comes out and we're recording this around the day that uh, Red Alert Camp, Star Trek Picard Season 3 Episode 1 comes out, which is a episode that's laden with his score. So I feel like today has been a Jerry Goldsmith day for me, and I can't complain about that fact. I mean, I did love the impromptu music party they have in this movie, where Sean Connery's playing the comb. Yeah, I never thought, I, and I know it's not a kazoo, but I wrote down kazoo in my notes because it makes the same noise. But I never thought I'd have a film where Sean Connery plays the comb. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, I didn't think I'd, in a jazz band, just to add to it, you know. Uh, it, it's some real folk jazz right there. I was curious if either of you had thoughts on Klaus Maria Brandauer in this movie. Because for me, he didn't really, he didn't really leave much of an impression. I liked him. Um, I thought he, um, he got across that idea that both, um, idealism and fatalism in the movie. And I thought he brought that across very good. I think I think when he's on the screen, he's quite dynamic to watch. I just think I didn't, I didn't find myself wondering where he was off screen at the time. I wasn't like wanting to see more. Yeah. No, and he doesn't. Yeah, you know, he doesn't look like a movie star. He looks like he looks like he could be the character he's playing. And I had a question actually for you, Henry. Have you read the book Russia House? Yes, several times. How much, like, in terms of internal monologue? does the book give you? Because that was something I wondered if I was almost missing in the movie version was a, a better sense of just what the individual participants are thinking. Um, Paul Free comes off. Um, um, he's basically the narrator. Mm. Um, it's his story that he's, it's the, he's telling the story. Right. So it comes off, um, you know, much more, um, there's, there's more depth to it, but it's a book. It's not a movie. Mm. Yeah, of course. It gives you that room. Right. Um, right. There is a dig, which you've mentioned, at Americans um, in the movie that wouldn't be, um, you know, to somebody, I guess, outside the business, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't stand out. But I've read enough of them. And I've known enough people in the business to know that this was kind of a dig. We go back to the Roy Scheider character mm -hmm. saying, well, see you next time. And the... Um, the Palfrey character suffers the loss more than the Americans do. Um, that's kind of a dig at American espionage, um, a gentle dig at American espionage. And it isn't true. Um, you know, Americans suffer the loss of an agent um, just as much as the Brits do. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam. What have we got in our crosshairs this month? Hitchcock changed the face of spy cinema, but what about horror? 
Well, we're going to look at 1960s Psycho and find out if even podcasters need to go a little mad sometimes. Wee, 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 wee. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. I think that drifts over quite beautifully to dislikes. Now, Henry, you, you, you queued one up pretty beautifully at the start, something you didn't like about the film. Do you care to share? Um, yeah, the ending differs dramatically. This is a spoiler alert. Um, differs dramatically from the book. Okay. Um, in the book, um, the, the character disappears. The Barley character vanishes. And um, after he makes the deal with the Russians. And there are, there's um, notes that there have been sightings of him. And then he reappears in Lisbon. And what he's doing is he's re- renovating an apartment for Katya to come to with her uncle and her twins and the twins. And Paul Free comes to visit him and just, you know, talks to him. And there's a hint. It's one line where he um, mentions that, you know, um, the Barley character was under tight control, perhaps even in prison by the way he folds a sheet or folds a, a, a work cloth. And they have a long talk and they have a drink. And um, Barley is holding out optimism in Lisbon. He's building this apartment or renovating this apartment for Katya and her family. And Palfrey holds out little hope that she's ever going to appear. And that's the book. Um, in the movie, she does appear at the end with her family, and he greets her as she steps off the boat. Um, the book is closer, and again, I want to bring in Graham Greene. Um, the book is closer to um, Human Factor, the end of Human Factor, where the phone line goes dead, um, than it is to the, you know, than it is to the movie. So it's a Hollywood happy ending where she gets off the boat and Barley's deal. The Soviets stick to Barley's deal. I, I can see where you know there's be some disappointment there because I I think I also prefer the mystery and what what might have happened to Katya because I I suppose the implication is that she doesn't turn up and she's been killed. Um, in the book, um, she just goes about her life. Oh, okay, right. Another spoiler alert, but you know, in. In, in Le Carre's books and in Graham Greene's books and in a lot of spy novels, um, innocence is um, viewed as a sin. It's a flaw. Innocence and trust is a flaw. Um, optimism is a flaw in a lot of these books. Um, if, you, if you go back to um, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, um, the innocent, the girl, who innocently believes in communism is um, shot as they're going over the wall. Um, the innocents always, you know, don't have happy endings. And this being a studio film in 1990, starring Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer, there is zero chance a studio is going to sign off on an ambiguous ending or a downer ending. And right. yeah, I can kind of see how you would be frustrated given the original ending. Yeah. Well, as a, as you know, as an author yourself, 
how do you feel like you know taking away the the expectation of the novel and looking at what you get as an ending as it is does it work for you or or do you find that it it is still too soft the hollywood ending or the book ending the the hollywood ending um i think it's too soft hmm. that's fair i would have i would have um, ended it as look hooray ended the book with him just you know renovating the apartment forever waiting for her to show up so that sense of ambiguity and then just fade out yeah it also ties into something you know henry you said earlier about kind of the the men's fantasy of espionage and that ending ties much more into a fantasy than a reality right you know he saves the girl um he betrays his country but saves the girl he has his cake and he eats it yeah um there is one other point in there that's interesting we're towards the end of the movie. Um, he tells um, his handler, you shouldn't open other people's letters. You shouldn't read other people's letters. Yeah. Which is an echo from early American espionage history in the early 20th century where the Secretary of State, Henry Simpson, um, closed down a decoding operation called the Black Chamber because he, you know, he famously said, gentlemen, don't read each other's mail. Um, and that's just kind of thrown in there, but I found it interesting. I think that's the sort of, and, and actually something I didn't really touch on in, in likes, but I there's a depth to the story, which I think is what Lucare brings to it. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's really where a lot of my joy from this film came from. So that, that makes sense that he ha- makes that sort of call back. Cam, uh, speaking of dislikes, though, something you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I kind of set this one up early on. The romance between Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer just fell totally flat for me. Um, I don't know how it would have been perceived in 1990. I found watching it in 2023, the age difference was just so glaring to me. It was uncomfortable. And when I'm watching Sean Connery profess his love for this woman who I have really captured no sparks off the two of them through the entire film. When I'm watching him profess this thrilling love for her in a kitchen, I'm like, this is brutal. Like, this is not working for me at all. And I was having flashbacks to my mom's uh, well-worn saying she throws around, there's no fool like an old fool. Yes, I, I've heard that one from your mother as well. I will point out there's a 28-year difference between Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, he was, I think, 59 at the time, and she was like, what, 30? 30, 30? I mean, it's, not a, it's not a Bond and Stacey Sutton in A View to a Kill. It's not quite that bad. Well, but that fits in with his naivety, doesn't it? That he could, that he could woo her. That he could woohoo, that, that, that he had a chance. Um, it's a kind of innocent. But the movie kind of supports it with that ending, though, I think. Yeah. So, it, uh, yeah, I suppose, actually, that it's really the ending that solidifies the romance. So maybe it, I, I assume that in the book it really is even the romance part of it, you could contextualize it as it was her playing him. Um, I didn't get that from the book, but you could. Okay. Interesting. What was the, did they ever indicate the ages in the book? And now I can't remember. I'm okay, sorry. Okay. Fair enough. Um, she is younger in the book. She isn't, you know, portrayed as middle aged. She's portrayed as young. I mean, it's probably going down that little drummer girl idealistic sort of viewpoint thing. Male fantasy. Mm. It's again, it's male fantasy yeah, for sure. I, I, I do, I do agree with you. I suppose. I, I don't think. I mean, that's me just looking at it holistically, at maybe being annoyed by the age gap, but. 
it didn't jump out to me as being problematic until you've pointed it out. And I can see your point. But I feel like both actors played their role well enough to realize it wasn't really an issue for me. I guess I just never got a sense of chemistry. Wasn't there another movie where there was a huge age gap that Sean Connery played? Um, yeah, I think you're thinking of, was it Entrapment? Where it was him and Catherine Zeta-Jones? Entrapment, yeah. Mm. Well, okay. Okay. Yeah, these are... Annoyingly, these are both, like, structural things. Whereas my dislike, I'm going to point out, is more to do with how it's paced. And I think, yeah, much like this podcast, this film has an awful lot of people talking. And I love it at first. And it's great seeing the sort of Brits working it out and Ken Russell doing Ken Russell whilst he's doing, you know, uh, telephone bingo. Great to watch. But by the end, <laughs> by the end, I'm just, I'm sick of listening to people talk. There's this whole protracted scene in Vancouver. It's meant to be in Russia, but it's filmed in Vancouver. I was just like, I don't know why this is here. It's taken 15 minutes of the film and pushed it to a two-hour limit. It, I, I felt like you could have streamlined it a little bit. Now, I'm sure these are very important scenes built into the book that they've translated. But I just feel like they're empty. There's nothing adding or building in the film. And so I'm just sat there watching this nice house with Sean Connery acting his way around it. What about the scene? It's a throwaway scene. I thought it was great. On the bridge where Sean Connery um, is approached by a black marketeer. He said, you want girls? You want drugs? Mm, yeah. The guy is wearing a furry coat. Um, did that did do things like that bother you no because they they've they almost feel more they're like the veneer they're very quick they're, they're sugary they're they're enjoyable but the the stuff in that scene i was talking about it was like 10 15 minutes or at least it felt that way yeah like i would say the scene on the bridge it like adds to the overall atmosphere and kind of flavor of the locations and the world that he's occupying but um I think, yeah. I would also say it gives Sean the sense of him understanding the world that he's in in Russia and being able to navigate it without fear. Yeah. I think that's what that showed for me. Like, he isn't afraid by some youth walking around in, on the streets of Russia, you know, potentially threatening him. Interesting. This is, these are always tough ones for me because I feel like some of this is built for people who really enjoy these sort of deep, dark, Cold War thrillers, you know, really looking at what it takes to be a spy in reality. And, for a lot of the time, that sort of stuff worked for me in this film, and it has worked in other films for me too. But I just <laughs> there was a lot of people talking, and I just I'm not I'm not saying I want more like I don't want a gun sequence in there, I don't want shooting action car driving, but just do something that's character driven for 15 minutes instead. If you want to use that runtime up, make it a character driven sequence, maybe building up the the romance between Connery and Pfeiffer. I don't know some more shopping or something. I build the world, but this just felt like it was a chance to get most of the cast together in a room to, you know, do metaphors about steak. Well, I mean, a lot of it is, like, very process-driven. And, you know, a movie that I really love that we covered, Zero Dark Thirty, um, a lot of those actors showing up are not given character arcs. They are there to take a point of view, explain something that needs to happen, at least in that film, it worked more for me in terms of kind of making the world feel compelling, dramatically interesting, and kind of pulling me in. Whereas here, I felt it kind of held me at a distance in some of these sequences where it is kind of people 
giving exposition or basically moving the process along, it didn't... It, it's frustrating because I feel bad because this is our second Lacare after Little Drummer Girl. And I'm not in love with either one of them. No. But I've seen Lacare films that I really, really, really enjoyed. But unfortunately for our audience, all they're hearing is me be kind of like poo-pooing all over Le Carre adaptations. And I know there's ones coming up in the future or even something like Constant Gardener, which isn't really spy related, but a movie I really enjoyed. There are examples out there. It's just like this one and Little Drummer Girl just did not grab me. What about um, Spy Who Came In From The Cold? That one, I'd, it's like we almost don't want to spoil talk about that one because we haven't covered it yet, but... Uh, Ding ding ding! That's a that's a pretty good one. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll leave that there because I won't I won't spoil my thoughts on it. I did just want to ask everyone a question while we're in the dislike section because this was a thing that was brought up a lot in critical reviews around the time. And this this film's got about sixty percent on IMDb and it tends to sit around about the three out of five star mark, two out of five star mark for most critics. Well, it's it's so mixed though. It's so weird how you'll see people who there are four star reviews that are like this is a perfect work of espionage storytelling, and then you'll get something say like the Roger Ebert review, yeah, which is I think two stars, and it's basically like uninteresting people talking for two hours. Yeah, and I and I totally get both viewpoints. The question is, and the thing that comes up quite a lot is this film doesn't have an antagonist in the classical sense. Like there is no bad guy you could say the concept of the gray man is the bad guy maybe the process maybe the fact that he's being made to be a spy is the bad guy but there isn't really someone you can go ah get him oh look it's blofeld let's send the army after him or something you know, i'm just trying to give you an example but i'll ask the question to you gents perhaps henry you first do you find that lack of a a, a focused antagonist to be a problem or is it is it fine I find the antagonist to be the um, the um, fading Soviet intelligence service and the um, you know the, the bureaucracy. But that's more like a and this is what the the critics were sort of saying and, it, and it's more why I'm sort of posing it as a question. That's more of a concept than a person that you can vilify and and I can see why people might have trouble extrapolating and and sort of building an emotional response to nothing. So you would have been. So it would have been better, do you think, if um, Stoppard perhaps wrote um, a KGB guy into the script to constantly be there? It's it's hard because I, I'm not a screenwriter and I don't know if I could have the credits to say that I, I would do that. I just think it maybe it would have given it some sort of drive in the back half. I don't know. I, I know where my problems were and my problems were with its pace. I don't know if having a, a proper villain, in a sense, would have driven the pace anymore. It's just an interesting thing to point out when it comes to a film that is clearly quite divisive. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there are hints of them, the red car and the white car while they're, you know, at a meeting or, you know, at a day out, um, the woman walking past the phone um, ostentatiously while she takes the final phone call mm -hmm. um, in the hospital. So there, so, you know, so, so there are, you know, they're kind of like, um, I want to say, you know, they're kind of like spirits almost, you know, spooks. <laughs> yeah, well, he's haunted by them throughout the film. He he feels the sort of specter yeah. of them, as it were. Yeah. Specter. Um, well, it's like they set up early on, you know, with Connery uh, working with James Fox's character about how you can't even see the people around you. Yeah. Which obviously is tied to the people who are there to protect him. 
But on the flip side, it also establishes that that's the same way it would be with the opposing side. And I think like the movie, it didn't bother me not having like a central face as an antagonist, because I think what they want you to take away is essentially it's the politics. It's the situation, the bureaucracy that, you know, him and Brandauer want to overcome. Like the idea that instead of seeing it as like country versus country, we need to see the greater good that we need to work towards. And I honestly think the Michelle Pfeiffer character is there to show kind of the danger that could happen to someone. The sense that he has to rescue her because of what can happen when things go wrong. So in that regard, I didn't really need a, you know, a Blofeld is a simplistic term to say, because you don't want that kind of character in this movie, but kind of like your big bad. I didn't need anything like that because at least in terms of what everything that was going on meant to the characters, I think that communicated fairly well. What if there was a group of um, bad guys as there was a group of good guys? I mean, maybe that would have given it... Because one of the things this film does, which we haven't really spoken about, is in a sense, Sean Connery's character of Barley turns at the end of the film and gives the secrets, he sells the secrets to the Russians. Maybe getting a sense of what they're trying to do may help with that and give you a sense of there being an other but i think that plays against the theme that the film's trying to talk about which is it it's the it's the act of being a spy that is the enemy here it, it is the it is the overarching gray men it doesn't matter what side they're on it's just the fact that they are and they exist is the problem but it's it's a concept and i think a lot of moviegoers you know the average moviegoer and i would consider myself very much an average moviegoer tend to want to have a defined villain and a defined hero and you can kind of follow their process throughout the film see but in russia the the bad guys were pervasive right they were on your phone they were on the street um you know they were everywhere no i i i completely agree with the reality i just think like if we it, as a film i'm trying to maybe un unravel and un, and unpeel the layers as to maybe why it didn't work for some people and, and and that was something that was often called out which is why i wanted to explore it an example of maybe why this one didn't work for me in contrast to something else i think of like parallax view um that we tackled a ways back where there was always this sense of kind of dread hanging over that movie as warren Beatty proceeded you know through the course of his investigation into the assassination plot Whereas I didn't feel that sense of kind of mounting dread in this movie. And that's just a personal thing, but that's kind of how I felt. I, I will say if there was a scene where Sean Connery was strapped up to a chair made to watch films, it would <laughs> it would be Ken Russell directed films that is projected onto the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did appreciate in this movie that um, Katya went and saw um, Godard's Breathless. Uh, I was like, classy pick, classy pick. I, I thought you might get a like out of that one. I did. Mm. Well, I, I think before we sort of wrap up and look at the knock list, let's just tackle any final notes that we have. Henry, is there anything on your notepad that you haven't quite talked about you want to mention? Um, no, that's it. Oh, the, um, the, the optimism, I think. Sean Connery's optimism um, against the fatalism. Um, I, I, I think that's the, the overarching theme of the film and the book. You know, he just remains this optimist throughout the film. 
And it's actually quite refreshing with a lot of these sort of darker spy films because it really a lot of them do feel very nihilistic and, and sort of quite dreary at times, uh, defeated at, and and even like color palettes are muted. Uh, you know, they're less expressive than sort of the spy fires camp said. See, I I do I agree with you. I appreciate sort of the optimism that Connor. Yeah, but his optimism is a flaw. Yes, it is a flaw, and in, in at least in the book, for a sense, you could take it as his undoing. In, throughout the film, I never really, I don't know where you can put this, but throughout the film, I never really got the sense that he was aware of the consequences, where Katya did. I can see that, because he's quite kind of flippant a lot of the time. He gets a lot of quips, especially early on, which doesn't seem to kind of uh, support... Convey seriousness. Yeah, the, so exactly, support that he really understands how deadly these consequences are, yeah. I think just for me, in terms of final notes, I, I did just wanted to say that I want Ken Russell to basically do a running commentary on my life. Because <laughs> yeah. listening to him like deal with those phone calls and just like, what's he bloody doing? I was like, yes, I just I want him to be like in the back of my head making a commentary on my decision making. <laughs> uh, but Cam, anything you got? I got a couple of things. I like the, the real like uh, lo-fi sequence of them writing on the back of the uh the painting on the wall or whatever the picture on the wall the idea that you want to write on surfaces that won't pick up something that could be sketched and so grab a painting off the wall and sketch out or, or write a message there i thought that was really cool something i've never seen in a spy movie before and i always appreciate that scott we've tackled well over 100 spy movies at this point on the show and whenever they can show me something i haven't seen before that's exciting i agree yeah, it was a nice bit of uh, the old tradecraft, I think, as uh, they like to say in Spy Game. Uh, I think the only thing I would actually want to mention as well is we've covered two Lucare adaptations now. I'm just going to say out of the two we've covered, this is leaps and bounds better than Little Drummer Girl. Yeah, yeah, for sure it's better. Yes. Where do you come down Little Drummer Girl, Henry? Have you seen the adaptation? Um, I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters. Um... Not great. We we recommend keeping it that way. Yeah. No, great. <laughs> yeah. I I did have one other thing that actually kind of I thought was odd off the top of the movie, which was kind of this voiceover, um, with Sean Connery, you know, sitting in the room with the guys, kind of laying out things as we got like Katya meeting the book editor or whatever the book salesman trading things off with like a lot of voice over our top. And then we get a flashback to Connery being brought into that room. And I was like, that is such a bizarre structural choice. It felt like something that might've been in the book that was put in to the film. Henry, can you enlighten us on that one? Um, it doesn't ring any bells, but I do remember loving the editing of the movie. Now that you bring it up. I, I, I do. I did write down in my notes. I actually quite enjoyed the, the bookends of the interrogations on both ends because at the start he's interrogated by the Americans at the end he's interrogated by Russia right I just thought that was like they both had little voiceovers mm -hmm. too which I thought was quite nice but the first voiceover at the very start is actually quite jarring I know what you're saying I will also just I, I'll add I, I wrote this down in my notes catch all over I hardly know her <laughs> <laughs> I also um, had just a, a brief note about a line of dialogue where someone says <laughs> we should spy the living daylights out of them. 
And I it was, was Ken, like the, Ken, Russell. Ken Russell. It was a Ken Russell, yeah, which, of course, Living Daylights was two years before, or I guess, well, two years before the production of this movie. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that felt like a, a little bit of a nod, a tiny nod. Was it intentional? Someone's going to tell us it was in the book. Henry, I, I doubt you know it verbatim, but uh, one of the listeners will say that we're an idiot for not knowing. No, I don't. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't ring any bells again. Um, there are a lot of... Luck Hooray puts in so many small details. Um, you know, again, the detail about, you know, Barley being in prison or being tightly controlled is just one line towards the end of the book. Are we pitching that Ken Russell sings The Living Daylights? <laughs> we are now. <laughs> I want to hear that remix. It just seems so weird to me to have a reference to a, a 1987 Bond film that Connery is not in and has no affiliation with whatsoever in a uh, movie that Connery had a fair amount of power over, especially if he's you know okaying all the casting and what have you. That has to be coincidence, right? Well, I mean, people give it a, a lot of this online, but he didn't hate being Bond. I think he was still quite proud of it till the end. He didn't like the Broccoli's very much, and that's why he did Never See Never Again. But like, he still didn't mind being Bond. He just didn't like them. But does he want references to recent Bond films? <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> it would have been amazing if they'd also been like, you know, you have a license to kill now that you're out in the <laughs> out in the field. <laughs> do, you, do you have anything to declare? <laughs> <laughs> you have a golden eye. He's like, that one hasn't come out yet. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Well, speaking of Bond references, it's time for the knock list. And is it from the Russia House with Love? Oh, that's beautiful, Scott. <laughs> I've been. I've, I would say yes. Well, you've jumped in. Okay, we don't need to describe it. You're going for a yes. This is going on the list of the greatest spy movies of all time. In context, in historical context, I'd say yes. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you came on as a champion of this film and you've stayed true to your word. It's definitely from Russia with love for you. Cam, what about you? No, not for me. I think I it, this is one that actually made me want to read the book, to be honest with you. I did not feel that way after Little Drummer Girl. I was like, <laughs> I never want to read that book. <laughs> I want to burn this DVD. I want to throw it as far as I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas this one, I, I wanted more of an internal sense of this story versus what a film can capture. Um, but I just found in terms of, well, I mean, I've said it in just in terms of kind of grabbing my attention and carrying me through this two hour, you know, story of intrigue, it didn't really work. The central uh, relationship didn't work for me, but I can appreciate a lot of just visually what it's doing, its ideas, individual scenes. But yeah, for me, it's a no. Okay. Well, it's, it's a nice, uh, moment to bask in where my vote actually means something when it's a three way. <laughs> But I think I've I've telegraphed my thoughts on it. I think it's a very good film. I think I enjoyed watching it. But I think if I hold it up against the other films that are on the knock list so far, I don't think I can give it quite the pass. But I think it's going on that list of films that have almost made it. Like Spy Game. Like No Way Out. It's going on that list of things I could reach for of thrillers that I've enjoyed but just didn't necessarily meet the caliber of what I would classify something that goes on the knock list. So, two no's, one yes. As such, the Russia House is not making the knock list and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. 
it's interesting, Scott. I just want to jump in for a second here and just say that like the split vote seems entirely in keeping with the reception that this movie had. When you you know, as we've talked about with reviews and everything, it's like people are so split. So I'm really glad, you know, Henry was here to talk about this movie from the point of view of someone who really loves and appreciates what it's doing. And then I guess I'm on the opposite side of that. <laughs> it, no it, one appreciates it, that. <laughs> or you. Yeah, exactly. Or me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Speaking of Henry, Henry, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show to talk about The Russia House. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. It was great to do it. Um, before we let you go, firstly, we spoke about it at the start, but you know, your new book, Honey Trap, Sex, Betrayal, and Weaponized Love is available wherever you get your books from. But where can people sort of find it online? Where do you recommend they go? Um, you can go to Amazon. Um, it's on there. Um, and it's on all of the major, um, you know, websites, book websites. For sure. Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all of them. Perfect. Well, we'll have a link for that in the show notes below. People want to find out more about the book. And if they want to find out more from you, where can they find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at Spies Vespers. Perfect. And we'll put a link to that too. But yeah, Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. It's been great. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about the Russia house. I want to thank Henry once again for joining us. And if you want to hear more about his book, I'll hear more from him on Twitter. You can find links in the show notes below. But I teased it at the start of the episode. We have a very special guest joining us next week. We are joined by Mr. Jamie Anderson. Now, he is one of the hosts of the Jerry Anderson podcast. Jerry Anderson, the creator of shows like Thunderbirds, Stingray, Captain Scarlet, Joe 90, a massive name when it comes to British television, indeed. Uh, he also has a very intriguing connection to the world of James Bond. Back in the late 1960s, Jerry Anderson wrote a Bond script for a film titled Moonraker that was meant to come after On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But this script was locked away in the Eon vaults until now. Next week, we sit down with Jamie Anderson. We go through the entire story. You hear the ups and downs of the film that could have been from uh, Mr. Jamie Anderson himself. So it's one to look forward to, Cam. I'm sure this story will be even crazier than the Moonraker that wound up on screen. I've already heard it. I've already recorded it. I can assure you it's even crazier. There you go, Bond fans. You can't get this information anywhere else. So check out Spy Hards next week. Yes, this is not one to miss out. So make sure you tell your friends and your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we sit down with Mr. Jamie Anderson and chart the course of the Bond film that never was. Looking forward to it. And if you like what you heard on the show this week, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, a man, a woman, and a Muscovy duck walk into a bar. <laughs>